Chapter 12. Have we bartered for another God? I begin with a quotation from George Strecker. In earliest Christianity, orthodoxy and heresy do not stand in relation to one another as primary to secondary, but in many regions, heresy is the original manifestation of Christianity. If Jesus were God, then he must always have existed, and further discussion about his origin would be irrelevant. At Nicaea, argument about the origin of Jesus was officially settled. Under the leadership of Constantine and the Greek theologians of the 4th century, belief in the consubstantial deity of Jesus became a main plank in the doctrinal system of the Church, and so it has remained. But the emerging Trinitarian theory presented a considerable problem for the theologians. How were they to explain a deity of two, and later three, persons, and at the same time maintain that there was only one God? The unity which Constantine's council tried to foster became mired in endless debates about the nature of Christ. If Christ were God and his Father were God, did not that make two gods? The point was a continuing source of irritation. The Docetists, those who claimed that Jesus only seemed to be, advanced one solution. God was one, they said, appearing as Jesus in another mode of being. Jesus, therefore, was not really a distinct person, but God in another form. As Christ's human body was phantasm, his suffering and death were mere appearance. If he suffered, he was not God. If he was God, he did not suffer. That's a quotation from Paul Johnson's A History of Christianity. Others reasoned that if the father begat a son, there had to be a time when the son did not exist. The decision at Nicaea in 325 AD and later at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD was to declare Jesus both very God of very God and completely man at the same time. The technical term for this combination of natures was the so-called hypostatic union. The doctrine of the union of the divine and human natures in Christ, the two natures constituting a single person. The idea that Christ was both fully God and fully man, however, was self-contradictory to many. God, they objected, is by very nature an infinite being, while man is finite. One person cannot at once be both infinite or infinite and finite. Moreover, the Jesus presented by the Gospels, especially in the records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is obviously a fully human person distinct from God, his Father. Not a word is said by these authors about his being God, nor of his having pre-existed his birth. The tortuous details of the dispute over the identity of Christ can be examined in any standard textbook of church history. The battle raged over the nature of the Messiah. How could his humanity be reconciled with the now deeply entrenched notion that he was also God? 
And how, since the Jesus of the Gospels was clearly a different person from his father, could a charge of polytheism be avoided? The debate, although dogmatically resolved by church councils, has never been laid to rest. Both layman and scholar across the Christian world have continued to be troubled by the apparently contradictory terms of these conciliar decisions, not to mention the jumble of confusing words involved in the discussion. How can two separate individuals, as they obviously are throughout the New Testament records, father and son, how can they both be fully deity? How can they constitute in reality only one deity? It has normally been safer to accept that it just is so. Dissent from orthodoxy was met with an unaccountable harshness. Established religion apparently saw nothing unchristian about venting its wrath on objectors. One of many later opponents of Trinitarianism was a Unitarian surgeon, Dr. George Van Paris, who refused to give up his faith. It was said of him at his trial before the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, quote, that he believes that God the Father is only God and that Christ is not very God. He was burned to death by leaders of the Church of England at Smithfield in England on April the 25th, 1551. That information comes from G. H. Williams' book, The Radical Reformation. 250 years later, a British nonconformist minister, Joseph Priestley, saw a lifetime of scholarly work go up in flames at the hands of a mob in Birmingham, England. Priestley was the victim of the fire that had been ignited by the decision of the Nicene Council to suppress all objectors. He believed God to be only one person and Jesus to be mortal man. Contrary to the Constantinian Council's orthodox, so-called, decision. This brilliant scientist and minister of religion, a Greek and Hebrew teacher, had come to the conclusion that much of what was taught as Christianity could not be supported by the Bible. His views brought him under attack. His home, library, laboratory, papers, and chapel were destroyed by a rioting mob. Although a firm defender of the Bible against the attacks of critics and detractors, his deviation from the accepted beliefs of his clerical colleagues made him anathema. What did these men and many others who paid with their lives find in the Bible which caused them to arrive at a different conviction about the nature of God? 
Why was this persuasion so powerful that they were willing to surrender everything for it? Why did religious leadership feel so threatened that they punished their opponents by putting them to death? Why even today, in many circles, does any questioning of the Trinity provoke such extraordinary alarm? If there were even one unambiguous biblical statement to support the extraordinary idea that the previously existing Son of God, himself actually God, became man and was himself the creator of all that exists, would not those who believe in such an idea feel a quiet confidence accompanied by a sense of pity and charity for the ignorant unbeliever? Why does history record so much violence and intense anger roused in the Trinitarian believer in defense of what even he admits is largely a baffling mystery? It is hard to believe that assent to a proposition so impossibly difficult is the one great criterion for salvation. A 17th century Orthodox bishop of the Church of England seems to be caught in a trap against his own better judgment. I quote, We are to consider the order of those persons in the Trinity described in the words before us in Matthew 28, verse 19. First the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Ghost, every one of them which is truly God. This is a mystery which we are all bound to believe, but yet must exercise great care in how we speak of it, it being both easy and dangerous to err in expressing so great a truth as this is. If we think of it, how hard it is to imagine one numerically divine nature in more than one and the same divine person, or three divine persons in no more than one and the same divine nature. If we speak of it, how hard it is to find out words to express. If I say, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost be three, and every one distinctly God, it is true. But if I say, they be three, and every one a distinct God, it is false. I may say, God the Father is one God, and the Son is one God, and the Holy Ghost is one God. But I cannot say that the Father is one God, and the Son is another God, and the Holy Ghost is a third God. I may say that the Father begat another who is God, yet I cannot say that he begat another God. I may say that from the Father and Son there proceeds another who is God. Yet I cannot say that from the Father and Son there proceeds another God. For though their nature be the same, their persons are distinct. And though their persons be distinct, yet still their nature is the same. So that though the Father be the first person in the Godhead, 
the Son the second, and the Holy Ghost the third, yet the Father is not the first, the Son the second, and the Holy Ghost a third God. So hard a thing is it to word so great a mystery aright, or to fit so high a truth with expressions suitable and proper to it, without going one way or another from it. That's a quotation from Bishop Beveridge in his work Private Thoughts, cited by Charles Morgridge in his book The True Believer's Defense Against Charges Preferred by Trinitarians for Not Believing in the Deity of Christ, written in 1837. If we confine ourselves to the plain statements of the Christian documents, what is the hard biblical evidence about the origin of Jesus? Is it not obvious that Jesus did not think he was the Creator when he referred to God who, and I quote, made them male and female? Mark 10 verse 6. In Hebrews 4, and verse 4, we learn that God rested at creation. The writer to the Hebrews means the Father when he refers to God. The term God is used in a secondary sense, of course, of Jesus in Hebrews 1 verse 8. Jesus is reported as saying that he was not God. Mark 10 verse 18. Even a cursory reading of Matthew and Luke leads us to conclude that it was at his birth from the Virgin Mary that Jesus came into being. Luke 1 verse 35. This would also appear to be just what the Old Testament expected about the Messiah, unless we read back into the Hebrew Scriptures the idea of pre-existence and then mistakenly attribute it to the authors of the Bible. Paul's short summary of the history of Jesus is not a Trinitarian statement. I quote, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that is, as a human being, was taken up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 Paul holds that Jesus was revealed in the flesh, a plain statement of the way the Saviour first appeared to man. It was a human person. No hint of pre-existence as angel or as God is implied in this concentrated picture of the Messiah. Some manuscripts have inserted the word God for the words, he who. The alteration is admitted by modern translators to be unwarranted. The word God is most unlikely to have been part of the older manuscripts. Such interpolations, like the famous spurious Trinitarian edition in 1 John 5 verse 7, which is omitted by modern translations, suggest that someone was trying to force a new idea on the original text.
exactly the same violence to scripture appears in the Vulgate or Latin translation of the Bible when it alters a prediction of the Messiah from, quote, he is your Lord to he is the Lord your God, as in Psalm 45, verse 11. The change symbolizes a fatal loss of Jesus' identity as Messiah. Statements by theologians and historians who have recognized the tragedy that befell Christianity in the 4th and 5th centuries could fill an entire volume. A former professor of the history of philosophy at the University of Vienna wrote, Christianity today is like a tree, or a forest, if you will, on a mountaintop. Uprooted by a storm, one suddenly sees how little soil it had to hold it up. The reason for this alarming fact is that Christianity is not rooted in the soil from which it stems, from Jewish piety. The Jewish fear of God, love of humanity, love of earthly pleasures, joy in the present and hope for the future. Christianity got itself into a dangerous position through its identification with the religio-political state of Constantine. Since Pope John XXIII, some real opportunities have arisen to break free of the Constantine influence. That's a quotation from Frederick Heer, God's First Love, written in 1970. Unfortunately, this Constantinian influence, unopposed except by a few dissenting voices, has proved to be the graveyard of true Christian unity. Can we call a body rallied around a synthesis of biblical truth and alien Greek philosophy, amalgamated with Gentile political systems, pagan customs and beliefs, can we call that truly Christian? Since the time when Constantine sponsored the church councils of the fourth century, history witnesses to the long agony of a divided Christianity torn by sectarian strife, with lands shamed by some of the bloodiest struggles recorded in the annals of man. There's a deep irony in the fact that such warfare should have claimed the name of Christ. The baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, was introduced to the world with an announcement by the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. That's to say, his chosen people. Luke 2, verse 14. And yet the Christian community, which should have been an example to the world of peace among men, has failed miserably, even in its own house, to demonstrate that peace. Jesus himself announced that, quote, he did not come to bring peace, 
but a sword. Matthew 10, verse 34. He was fully aware that his gospel of the coming kingdom, designed to instill in believers a love of peace, truth, and respect for the one creator God, and to free our minds from the entrapment of fear and superstition, would not be integrated peacefully into a system rife with suppression and the control of human beings by fellow human beings. Under the banner of the Prince of Peace, some of the most vicious wars have been waged. The spectacle of Christian killing Christian and the Church supporting torture and violence against those deemed to be heretics gives point to Christ's prediction that, and I quote, the time is coming for everyone who kills you, the true believers, that is, to think that he is offering service to God. Those are the words of Jesus in John 16, verse 2. A heavy responsibility must lie on the shoulders of all those who have used the name of Christ to perpetuate systems of violence. Jesus' absolute ethic of love should have prevented believers from entering the machinery of warfare, which so often involved the slaughter of those whom they claimed as brethren in the faith. There is, after all, nothing complex about Jesus' message of reverence for the one God, his Father, and of love to all, even the enemy. I quote, The gospel was addressed to plain and honest minds, and plain and honest minds can understand its important and practical lessons. The great principles of natural religion are so simple that our Saviour thought men could gather them from the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and the clouds of heaven. And he demanded of those who stood around him why they did not of themselves judge what is right. The gospel was addressed to the poor, the uneducated, and it was committed to unlettered men to teach it to others. It would be most strange, therefore, if only the learned could understand or explain it. In truth, its great and practical principles and character are most simple, as those will find it who study it in the teachings and example of Jesus, rather than amidst the confusion of tongues, hypercriticisms, the presumptuous or the frivolous conceits of uncompromising, prejudiced, bigoted, infuriate polemics, and enveloped in all the mystery and metaphysical abstruseness of theological controversy. That was a quotation from Valedictory from Sermons by Henry Coleman, written in 1820. Historians would be hard-pressed to find a more striking example of confusion and bitter ecclesiastical struggle than the battles over what and who God and Jesus are, questions which formerly surfaced 
in the centuries following the writing of the New Testament and which led to the tragic decisions made at the time of the Nicene Council. Today we refrain from killing dissenters. The law protects them. Nevertheless, they may be punished in other ways. Those who disagree with accepted dogma are often ostracized and branded as heretics by others claiming to be the watchdogs of orthodoxy. Ears and minds are closed to what dissenters have to say, as though somehow a satanic plot is unleashed when a contrary opinion is voiced. Few Christians can conceive the possibility that they may have embraced long-standing error. We have been well-schooled by our teachers to wrap a protective armor around our imagined truth, even though it may be indefensible error. We are prone to give unquestioning assent to hallowed church traditions. We are often overawed by authority and title. Seldom do we pause to consider that religious leadership is in the hands of those who have conformed to a prevailing pattern or acceptable thinking and were rewarded for their so-called orthodoxy. But can our present denominational systems, among which there exists serious conflict and disagreement, all faithfully represent God and truth? A British biblical scholar and author of journal articles on Christology admitted in correspondence that, and I quote, my experience has been that Christology is a subject on which some are not as frank as they should be, especially if, as churchmen, they are formally committed to the traditional creeds. Theology's insistence that we must believe an unproved theory that three is one and one is three, a theory which it admits it cannot explain or understand, has imposed an intolerable burden on Christianity and has taxed the common sense of anyone who attempts to worship God with all the soundness that the mind can muster as he is instructed to do. To impose an aura of sanctity on an unprovable and unbiblical concept because fourth century theologians in league with a so-called Christian emperor dictated the terms of the creed, elevates blind acceptance of dogma over the honest quest for biblical truth. Christianity has rightly pointed a corrective finger at a secular world for its attempt to impose the unproven theory of evolution on mankind. Christians have with remarkable incisiveness exposed and warned fellow believers of the oriental origins of the contemporary New Age movement. Yet Christianity has not recognized that it has harbored in its own doctrinal system 
a theory about God which alienates it from its roots in Hebrew theology and from Jesus, whose understanding of who God is was formed by the prophets of Israel, not by philosophy or church councils. Christians have been told that Constantine, who is linked to the council which established Trinitarian belief, was converted to Christianity. What happened, in fact, was quite the opposite. This shrewd political giant took Christianity under his wing to further his own political aims. A vast number of Christians eventually sheltered under the protection of Constantine's system and have ever since enjoyed a working relationship with the political powers. Christianity became converted to Constantine and wedded to a religio-political coalition whose sponsor continued to have coins minted in honor of his god, Sol Invictus, the sun god, not the god of the early Christians. These are the verifiable facts of history notwithstanding the attempts of apologists to reinterpret the facts in a way which enhances Constantine's Christian image, few seem to be aware of the Church's accommodation to paganism and the compromise of true reverence for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The resurrected Son of God has had to compete with the invincible sun god, Sol Invictus, the god of Constantine. Christianity closed its eyes to biblical reality and simplicity when it decided that two or three persons composed the one god. The promotion of this multiple deity has been one of the greatest ideological successes ever accomplished. It was achieved with the help of coercion, the sword, torture, and the massive weight of pressure from a coalition of clergy and the state join in an unholy alliance and benefiting from a mysterious concept. Calling itself the Holy Roman Empire, however, scarcely reflected its real nature. At the Council of Nicaea, not only did Constantine excommunicate and exile anyone who refused to conform, he took the precaution of burning any letters of complaint and dispute. This was a tragic suppression of unwanted facts, and history is filled with parallel examples. Promoting Jesus as God, another God in fact, in addition to the Father, Christianity indeed, quote, bartered for another God. As we read in Psalm 16, verse 4, the New American Standard Version, it was to its shame and sorrow that it traded in the historical man, Jesus Messiah, whose desire as God's unique human agent was to lead men to the one God.
in his stead. It elevated the God-man. Greek mythology triumphed over Hebrew theology. Thus Christianity sold its birthright. Established religion had failed to accept Christ or his message during his brief sojourn on earth. Nor has his gospel message of the kingdom of God found wide acceptance among the clergy since that time. Jesus has been transmuted into the God-man, a figure less than human, a metaphysical construct of the Greek speculative genius, not the man-messiah, king of Israel, described by the Christian documents. Lost in the theological confusion was the reality of the human Messiah who really died and was resurrected to immortality as an example to mankind, blazing the trail for others who might follow him on the path to immortality through resurrection into the kingdom of God on earth to be inaugurated at Jesus' future return. When Christianity adopted a Godhead of more than one person, it unwittingly flirted with idolatry. It embarked on a course of lawlessness by embracing, quote, another God besides the only true God, the Father. Christianity thus broke the first commandment and has continued on the same troubled path, unaware of the source of its intractable problems. It could be argued that the sheer weight of numbers agreeing on the Trinitarian concept is sufficient evidence for the correctness of that belief. How could all these people be wrong? In reply, it can be asked, when has the majority mentality been the judge of right and wrong? Is the earth flat or the center of our universe? Protestants allow that the whole church had gone wrong for a thousand years before Luther called it back to Scripture. There's reason to believe that the Reformation needs to continue. Luther's adopting the doctrine of the sleep of the dead points to an element in the process of restoration that his followers found to be too radical for the times. Surely the doctrine of the Trinity is due for a thorough inspection to see if it might not be part of our heritage from the Church Fathers and Councils rather than from the Bible and from Jesus. Even the suggestion that Jesus is not God in the same sense as the Father appears to some as an unpardonable attack on Scripture. Yet Jesus himself made it clear that there is only one true God. John 17 verse 3 and he named that one God as the Father. He always distinguished himself from God by claiming to be 
his messenger. He protested that he was not God, but he was the Son of God. John 10, verses 34 to 36. Jesus was continually referred to as a man by New Testament writers, even after his resurrection. Not one writer ever refers to Jesus as, quote, the one true God, or includes him in the phrase, one true God. Jesus and God are expressly distinguished whenever they are mentioned together. They are two separate and distinct persons. There are some 1,350 Unitarian texts in the New Testament besides the thousands in the Old Testament. These occur every time the Father is called God. Jesus is called God, but in a different sense, for certain, only twice. John 20, verse 28, and Hebrews 1, verse 8. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, state that the word, lowercase w, which, not who, was fully expressive of God, in other words, theos, that that word, lowercase w, became a man, the man Jesus. The constant use of God for the Father hardly suggests that he and Jesus are to be thought of as, quote, co-equally God. In the Old Testament, references to God with personal pronouns in the singular occur some 11,000 times, informing us that God is a single divine individual. So vulnerable to attack is the Chalcedonian formula, which declares Jesus to be, quote, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, and, and I quote again, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. That a Roman Catholic scholar claims that, quote, the demand for a complete reappraisal of the Church's belief in Christ right up to the present day is an urgent one. That's a quotation from the Jesuit Lois Grillmeyer in his book, Christ in Christian Tradition, written in 1975. Bailey admitted, quote, that a great many thoughtful people who feel themselves drawn to the gospel in these days are completely mystified by the doctrine of the Incarnation, with capital I, the idea that God merely appeared in Jesus in another form. Far more is this true than we theologians realize. That's from the book, God Was in Christ. One of the leading spokesmen for fundamental Christian evangelism remarked on a nationwide television broadcast that no theologian had ever been able successfully to explain to him the doctrine of the Trinity. This seems to imply that one must simply place one's confidence in the decrees of 4th 
and fifth century church fathers that it just is so. But we may ask the question, who gave those Greek theologians the right to decide Christian theology for all time? Who invested them with the power to declare infallibly that the Godhead consists of three eternal persons? Once belief in God as a single person was denied, speculation became rife. The single supreme God of the Hebrews no longer ruled without rival in the minds of believers. Paul documents the persistent tendency of the human mind to exchange the true God for other deities. Here's a quotation from Paul. For since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but became futile in their speculations. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's in Romans 1 verse 20, verse 21 and verse 25. We now talk about how great mother nature is. We have removed Father God, the Creator, from our thinking. If some have their way, it will no longer be acceptable to speak of God as Father, lest we appear sexist. The loss of a clear perception of the one God has opened the floodgates of so-called New Age thinking. Every man declares himself God, awaiting self-discovery. This philosophy is not really new. It's an ancient oriental concept first introduced to Adam and Eve with the words, and I quote, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Genesis 3 verse 5. The pursuit of knowledge is proper, but it must be the true knowledge of the true God. All else is vain. The drift into polytheism was inevitable once the God of the Jews was rejected. Christianity has fulfilled the prediction of the psalmist David when he said, and I quote, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. Psalm 16, verse 4. As the Apostle Paul warned the first century church, and I quote, If one comes preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached, you bear this beautifully. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. It is impossible to find in Paul's writings a pre-existing God the Son, except by neglecting his primary creedal statements concerning the Son of God, quote, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. 
Romans 1 verse 3, and compare with that Galatians 4 verse 4. The verb used by Paul there simply means coming to be, coming into existence, that is, from a woman. Galatians 4 verse 4, herself a descendant of David. Romans 1 verse 3. Paul holds firmly to his unrestricted Jewish monotheism, a creed which declares in the simplest terms that, quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, and that there is no God but the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, verse 6. When Christianity proclaimed, quote, another Jesus, who was, quote, very God, it automatically preached another God, who became part of a divine triangle. The God of the Old Testament, who said through Isaiah, Understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me, and I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 42, verse 8. This was a single divine individual being in the mind of the Jews and the first century church, and it was indeed the creed of Jesus himself. Christianity began to worship as God, one who was created. The faith thus fell into idolatry. Readers of the Bible neglected to note that Christ was called the Son of God because of his supernatural conception. Luke 1 verse 35. Jesus came into existence in his mother's womb and was thus part of the creation and not the creator. The official creeds sanctioned belief in, quote, another Jesus and, quote, another God. On the flimsiest of evidence, as, for example, Paul's belief that God sent his son, the idea was propagated that Jesus existed before his birth. Professor James Dunn puts his finger on the problem. I quote, It is possible that in the two passages where Paul speaks of God sending his Son, Romans 8 verse 3 and Galatians 4 verse 4, he means to imply that the Son of God was preexistent and had become incarnate as Jesus. But it is just as likely, indeed probably much more likely, that Paul's meaning did not stretch so far, and at these points he and his readers thought simply of Jesus as one commissioned by God, as one who shared wholly in man's frailty bondage and sin, and whose death achieved God's liberating 
and transforming purpose for man. That's a quotation from James Dunn's Christology in the Making. It is clear that Trinitarians place considerable strain upon certain so-called proof texts offered as evidence of the pre-existence of Christ. The word Elohim gives no evidence of plurality in the Hebrew Godhead. The phrase sent from God does not prove that you have enjoyed a life in heaven before coming to earth. In Scripture, the prophets and John the Baptist were also, quote, sent. Jeremiah was foreknown, but not preexistent. As we read in Jeremiah 1, verse 5, and compare with it 1 Peter 1, verse 20, and see also Jeremiah 1, verse 7, Jeremiah 7, verse 25, and John 1, verse 6. Jesus was first brought into being and then sent. Acts 3, verse 26. This is commissioning after his birth, not arriving from a pre-human existence. An entrenched distortion of monotheism. The hidden problem which faces the church today is the error in its understanding of God which invaded it from Gentile philosophies. The early church fought and lost the battle for belief in the unipersonal God but with a determination to take an objective, fresh look at the hard evidence of the Bible, we may find that the triune God concept becomes little more than an adult theological myth. Trinitarians are at a loss to produce a single passage in the Bible in which the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly stated. If we accept the words of the founder of Christianity at face value, belief in the Trinity challenges his teaching about the most important law and the focal point of all true religion. Belief, that is, in the God who is a single, undivided being. Before all other considerations comes the matter of, quote, the foremost of all commandments, and also the need to hear and believe in the God of Israel, who is the same one Lord. Mark 12, verse 29, as translated by the New Jerusalem Bible, Paul follows Jesus exactly when he states that there is no God but the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. This leads us to the important question, does it really make any difference what we believe? One of the most devastating concepts to invade the modern church is that a person's beliefs are insignificant as long as he loves God and his neighbor. After all, do not all versions of religion promote worship of the same God? The plain biblical fact is that Scripture insists on truth as distinct from error, 
as the basis of worship and salvation itself. Paul expressly linked salvation to a correct understanding of the identity of God and Jesus. I quote, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah, Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 5. The connection between correct, that's to say biblically orthodox belief, and salvation is inescapable here, as also in Paul's statement in which belief in the truth is starkly contrasted with being wicked and where salvation depends on receiving the love of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 13. The prophet Jeremiah was under no illusion about the importance of knowing the God of Israel when he said, and I quote, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. He continued by stating that, quote, The Lord is the true God. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. A truth which was echoed by Jesus centuries later when he said, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's from John 17, verse 3. With remarkable consistency, the Bible insists on the unique personality of the one God, Creator and Father, and the necessity of knowing this one God, the Father, and His Son, the Messiah. These strictly monotheistic texts dispel any idea that there can be more than one who is truly God. Scripture opposes the idea that we are at liberty to accommodate our conception of God to cultural environment, however well-meaning our intentions. To do so is to court paganism and inevitable polytheism, which is the ruin of true faith. Christians throughout the world are challenged to face the age-old question, what is truth? Where two conflicting points of view present themselves, it is the truth-seeker's responsibility to determine which, if either of them, is true. We dare not escape the force of the challenge by asserting that truth is elusive or unobtainable. This would be to embrace the familiar approach of Pilate at Christ's trial when he asked Jesus, What is truth? John 
18 verse 38. More than a genuine question, this was a philosophy rejecting the belief that absolute truth is attainable. It implied, in a true post-enlightenment style, that one opinion is as valid as another. It disregarded the claim Jesus had just made that he had come into the world for the very purpose of bearing witness to truth. John 18, verse 37. To say that all truth is relative negates Jesus' promise that, quote, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 8, verse 32. The Apostle Paul never for one moment conceded that someone else's error carried the same value as his truth. His somber warning to the church at Thessalonica about a great deception coming upon the world which would cause the ruin of those who did not love truth should not go unheeded. He clearly states that it is God himself who will send upon them a strong delusion to make them believe a lie because they did not welcome the love of the truth in order to be saved. That's a quotation from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 and 11. He repeated his warning to Timothy that there would, quote, come a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but would listen only to those who pandered to human desires. As a result, they would turn away from listening to truth and wander into myths. That's a quotation from 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 5. He was not talking about minor theological points, but about serious errors and myths leading to spiritual blindness, false goals, false gods, disobedience to God, and death. 1900 years later, a shrewd observer of the contemporary church will want to know why there is such fragmentation over the major question of the identity of the one God and Jesus. We can trace the source of the problem to a fracturing of the most precious of all beliefs that there is one God, the Father, and no other besides him. That's from 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6. John Locke thought that traditional theology was worthless because it was not primarily concerned with truth. He put the point powerfully in his essay concerning human understanding, written in 1661. I quote, He that would seriously set upon the search for truth ought, in the first place, to prepare his mind with a love of it. For he that loves truth not will not take much pains to get it, 
nor be much concerned when he misses it. There's nobody in the Commonwealth who does not profess himself a lover of truth, and there's not a rational creature that would not take it amiss to be thought otherwise of. And yet, for all this, one may truly say there are very few lovers of truth for truth's sake, even among those who persuade themselves that they are so. That's a quotation from John Locke, cited by Paul Johnson in his book, A History of Christianity. Following Christianity's perceptive analysis and exposure of the dangerous New Age theology of our time, it is now the moment to direct the focus of its examination to its own camp and consider the invasion of paganism which dates from the second century. The influence of Greek philosophy, which Canon Gouge described as, quote, a disaster from which the church has never recovered, in his essay, The Calling of the Jews, in the collected essays on Judaism and Christianity, this warning continues to go largely unnoticed by the majority of sincere Christians, yet it affects the faith at its very heart. It is naive to suppose that we can translate the biblical Hebraic concept of deity held as the foundation of true faith by Jesus into Greek thought without the risk of disastrous damage. It is fanciful to think that the Trinitarian and Binitarian systems which claim to have roots in the Bible can really be harmonized with the strict Unitarianism of Jesus and the Scriptures. The persistent objection of the Jews that Christianity has betrayed its origins by corrupting the cardinal doctrine of God must be acknowledged. Nor should the penetrating observations of contemporary historians be ignored. Historians have a way of seeing truth clearly where theologians are prone to have their vision blurred by tradition. Ian Wilson is witness against the unreasonable way in which the Trinity still rules despite Jesus' own ignorance of any such teaching. Ian Wilson wrote, If Jesus had wanted to institute a formula for the religion he taught, there is one moment described in Mark's Gospel when he had the perfect opportunity to do so. A scribe is reported as having asked him, which is the first of all the commandments? It was an occasion to which Jesus could have imparted one of those characteristic twists, bringing in something new, something involving himself, if he wished us to believe that he was a member of a trinity on an equal footing with God the Father. Instead, he looked unhesitatingly to his traditional 
Jewish roots. That's a quotation from Jesus, the evidence. By quoting the Shema, listen Israel, Jesus was affirming with the greatest possible emphasis the bedrock tenet of true belief. We are asked only to believe that the creed of Christ is the Christian creed, binding therefore on all Christian churches. If the Shema is incompatible with Trinitarianism, the creed of Jesus will not match our Orthodox creed. Many churchgoers act as if Jesus, to parody the Sermon on the Mount, somewhere said, you have heard that it was said, the Lord your God is one Lord, but I say to you, he is three in one. The first step towards the recovery of biblical Christianity would be an honest recognition that Jesus was a Jew and that as such, he confirmed the theology of the prophets of Israel. The story of Israel's failure to know God lay precisely in their inability to cling to the unipersonal God, the creator of heaven and earth. Whereas Israel fell into the hands of Assyria and Babylon, the Christian church was captured by the alluring world of Greek philosophy. It abandoned the God of Israel, the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, Compare with that Philippians 3, verse 3, which is the new Christian people most unreasonably forsook the creed of Israel. When Christianity modified its original creed and adopted belief in a God composed of three persons, it bartered for another God. From that disaster, only a wholehearted recovery of biblical belief in one God, the Father, and in Jesus as the Lord Messiah, and in his gospel message about the coming kingdom of God, only these can lead it to the glories of a new day.